I mentioned recently on the Down and Away Facebook page that I have a small stack of cases that, for various reasons, don't have enough material for seasons as long as I generally publish, but I still feel compelled to cover them. I still want to tell their stories. I believe every victim deserves as much time as I can personally give them. This short season is one of those cases. I have thought about her a lot since I discovered her case, because I believe that she endured more in her short time here on Earth than a lot of us will ever endure. And we don't even know her name. Claremont, Florida is tucked between Lakes Mineola and Minnehaha, about 22 miles west of Orlando in central Florida and southeast of Leesburg. It weighs in at a whopping 16 square miles, a little over two of which are made up of rivers, ponds, and lakes. US 27 and State Road 50 are the two main roads by which you make your entrance and exit from the area, unless you prefer to travel the tiny county roads that are lined with mostly scrub brush and woods, dappled here and there with a residential property surrounded by a bit of acreage. Let's just say that if this were a horror movie, and you had to run from one of those few and far-between houses in the area that we're discussing, it'd be a fair piece from one to the next on foot. This tiny oasis of rolling hills and not much else, at least back in the 1980s when we're talking about, is home to one of the state's first landmarks, the Florida Citrus Tower. From the top, you'll see 2,000 square miles, 40 spring-fed lakes, 17 million citrus trees. Now, as you leave the elevator to the right, you can go one flight of stairs higher. We call it the crow's nest. When you get ready to come down, just press the buzzer. I'll be right up. And we have a lady at the top. She'll be giving you a free cup of orange juice or grapefruit juice. That is what you heard in 1981 when you came to the Citrus Tower. What you'd see out the windows of the observation deck were rows and rows of knots of green, each representing a citrus tree. But in mass, it looked more like a counted cross-stitch pattern, and it went on for miles and miles. There is no complimentary orange or grapefruit juice now when you visit the observation deck, nor is there a lovely elevator docent wearing black horn-rimmed glasses and a polyester pantsuit. Now, you're on your own. The Grand Citrus Tower Plaza, ride to the top. And that's what it looked like down there from the top before. All right, go right in. All right. Okay. The Grand Citrus Tower opened July 1956 as Florida's highest observation point. It is 226 feet tall, 543 above sea level, equal to a 22-story building. You can see 35 miles to the horizon, 8 counties, 2,000 square miles. The tower contains 5 million pounds of concrete and 149,000 wow. pounds of I steel. Read that on the Wow. Did you? That's, that's it was built in 1955. And back in the back in the day when it was built, that's that picture right there. That all you could see is just the groves. That's it. When you looked out. Yeah, they built it looks in the middle of the orange grove. So now it's very different. How amazing is that? And back in the day, you would hear a lady talking about this in the elevator as you went up. Now you just go up by yourself. Okay. Oh wow. 
Okay. Once upon a time in 1922, a land developer named Edward Denslow bought a thousand acres on which he decided to grow citrus trees. He formed a company called the Postal Colony Company, and it was retired employees of the Postal Company that tended to the groves. For years, Claremont was one of the major citrus growers in the state. That was until the early 1980s, when a catastrophic freeze literally changed the landscape of the town. I have a very visceral memory of orange trees and their fragrant blossoms from when I was a kid. We lived right across the street from a huge orange grove. My mom used to send my sister and me over with large grocery bags, the kind that we'd get at Food World or Publix when we went grocery shopping, back before plastic bags, and she'd say, fill them up. So I guess you could say that was my personal entry into the world of criminal activity, because I am certain we were not entitled to partake of those oranges. But man, oh man, can I remember sitting out under those trees eating orange after orange until my lips burned and cracked from the acidity. We'd fill up those bags and then schlep them back across the street, where they'd eventually get washed and often squeezed for orange juice in the morning. Oranges and their smell have apparently played an integral part of my native Floridian sense memory all the way back before I can remember. My mom tells a story about how, once when I was a toddler, I sniffed at the air and I said, Mmm, mel de citrus. Apparently that was smell the citrus in toddler speak. Anyway, oranges. The Sunshine State was all about the oranges. So when those disappeared after the freeze, because Central Florida, areas like Orlando were booming at the time, suddenly the land, formerly home of the juicy fruit, became more valuable as residential property. According to census numbers in 1970, the population of Claremont was 3,661. But by 2010, it had skyrocketed to 28,742. I imagine those years after the freeze were rough on the Citrus Towers business. I can't imagine too many people wanted to ride up 22 stories to look at rows and rows of dead trees. While some growers replanted after each freeze, at least for a while, Claremont, Florida's orange heyday was officially over. In 1986, the Citrus Tower was sold to a group of investors. In an article from the Sun Sentinel in December of that year, it was described like this, quote, Exterior paint on the 226-foot high tower has cracked and peeled. Pieces of the landmark's decorative glass are missing or broken. The bloom was definitely off the rose, or citrus tree, as it were. I do have an independent recollection of Claremont being mostly orange groves, and even near the end of the 80s, the population was only around 6,000. It was still just a little expanse of barely nothing which most people associated with orange groves and quiet country roads. Our story this season begins right about here, in those years right after the freeze, when the population was still low, on one of those country roads. That even today is long stretches of woods on either side, fronted by weeds, that end five or so feet from the two-lane paved road that runs between highways 27 and 33. On September 25, 1988, at around 11.15 in the morning, a man stopped alongside County Road 474 to look for some cypress timber for lawn furniture. According to his statement, when he got out of the truck, he noticed an odor, and shortly thereafter, he would find the body of a decomposing female a few feet into the high weeds off the mowed grass on the side of the road. The report says that he got back into his car, drove the short distance home, and called to notify the Lake County Sheriff's Office. 
I always wondered what happened. I never heard anything from Al Evans, so I was just wondering whatever happened, if they found out who it was or what. Do you remember what you were doing that day that you happened to be in that area? Yeah, I was uh, working at a sand mine at the time, and I, I built those, uh, like the uh, Cypress lawn furniture, like wicker chairs. Uh-huh. And I was out there scouting and you had a certain area you can cut that wood out of it. That's what I was doing, looking for a place to you know, cut some more wood to build some more chairs. So you were looking for some more cypress wood, okay. That's right. All That's right. right. In your own words, tell me what you remember happening. Well, I had stopped. I was going down Highway 474 in south end of Lawrence, uh, Lake County in Florida, and I had pulled over on the side of the road there, and a friend of mine, Ruth Ray, has ranch. At that time, she had a ranch there, and I'd stop to walk down in there, go walk down in the Cypress Head there and look and see what kind of timber was in it. And when I got parked on the side of the road and got out, I smelled a foul odor, and I got to looking around, and that's when I found the body laying in the ditch. Oh, my goodness. Was there, like, a mowed area and then and then weeds, you know, like, next to the road? Sometimes there's, like, some mowed yeah, area? it was just the, the shoulder. It was in the bottom of the... The ditch off the road, you know, off the shoulder of the road. It wasn't 20 foot off the road. I mean, it was laying in the bottom of the ditch here. Okay. Now, did you live around here at the time, or were you passing through that day? I live, I used to live about six miles from that, that spot. Okay. And could you tell right away that this was a female, or how? Yeah, well, it was, had long blonde hair, so I assumed it was a female. I didn't get on up there close to it, but when I saw that, I just backed up and called 911. Yeah, how, how close do you think you got to it? Probably 20 feet. So I was standing on the shoulder of the road and walked up, and it was laying in the bottom of the ditch. It wasn't 20 foot off the road. And so it was pretty close to where you were when you parked? Yeah. And were there any other items that you could see around the body? I couldn't. I didn't see anything else, you know, but I just, like I say, once I saw it, I got back in the truck and called 911. I was sitting there on the side of the road whenever the sheriff and all got there. Okay. And when you, right when you got out of the car, you could smell that odor? Oh, yeah, it was no, that's what caught my attention. I've never smelled anything like it. Hope I never do again. Yeah, I, I've heard that it's a, a very specific smell and you don't forget it. So when you smelled that before you even went to look, did you have an idea of what it was? No, I had no idea what it was. Mm. That's the first time I'd ever smelled it. And I just, when I walked, you know, walked around the front of the truck, I mean, there it was. I just happened to, I parked right beside it is what it was. Yeah. Wow. So I, I got back in the truck, and I did back up a little bit away from it, and mm-hmm. that's when I made the phone call. So, were you familiar with that road at the time? Was it a? Did it get a lot of traffic? Yeah, it's a county road. It runs from uh, State Road 33 over to Highway 27. It was, I guess, a well-used, well-traveled road. Since you lived there, do you recall um, afterward any talk around the town about um, possible theories or, or what could have happened? Do you remember people talking about it? No, in a way, ever, ever said anything else about it. I, I was told very few people about it. Other than, you know, my wife and my kids, when I got back to the house. But other than that, I've not, I've never did tell anybody about it. Do you remember any anything being on the news or newspaper articles or anything never, like that? Never saw anything. That's what that's what it just got me. I mean, I never heard any. That's why I called the sheriff's department and met them out there. And then the uh, ambulance came. You know, with they. Because he asked me, he says, uh, I told him I found a body. She goes, oh, is it dead? I said, are you sure? And I asked me if they was, I was sure it was dead. I said, yeah, I'm very sure it's dead. Yeah. And I 
never heard another word from him until a while back. I don't know if my son told me about it. He had saw something on Facebook or something. I don't know what he was. And I never, I just wrote it off. So, well, I don't know. Never heard anything from anybody, so I didn't, hadn't do anything hmm. until I got this text from you. So they didn't even talk, that was the only time police talked to you, was that yeah, day? Yeah, they never came and did an interview or anything with me, just, huh? I mean, that was just the end of it. I just never heard another word. When they all got there, I left then. Yeah. Now, as far as Claremont back then, it was kind of a small town, right? What, yeah, it was small then. It was all orange groves then, and that's all... All the groves are gone, and it's houses and shopping centers and everything else now. It's about probably 15 miles from Clearmont, in it, where that spot was. It's a rural, rural area, no doubt. Yeah. And do you know? Do you remember any bars in the area, somewhere that she could have been picked up, anywhere fairly near? It used to be. I used to live by one of their own Highway 33 uh, County Line bar, but it, it, it burnt down, not, you know, not too long, too many years after that. So. It was called County Line Bar? Yeah, the Dixie Bar. Everybody called it the County Line Bar. It was a Dixie Bar. It was on Highway 33. It was about, I found a body on Highway 474, and it's about a half mile north of it on Highway 33. Okay, so that's it, fairly close. Back then, I mean, there were just very few houses in that area. And Do you think it was, it was... just a rural area. All it was, it was just, they just made a... That road, that 474, Highway 474, which is it's just a cutoff road from two state roads is what it was, just a shortcut. Yeah, and so does it feel to you like it was a, a place that the person who where they dumped her would have had to know that area a little bit? It's possible. I mean, it's just because they knew it. Anybody had ever been through, I mean, knew, that, knew it was a real rural area. Back then, there was very, very little, you know, tra- vehicle traffic on the road. Hmm. Other than the, uh, there were some sand mines on that road, and there they was rock trucks running up and down it. But I mean, other than that, sand mines. Okay, that's interesting too. I can check that. So, but other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of like you know traffic other than people no, that no, were. It was a. Do you think it, it was a standard a standard sand? Because I used to work for them. They was, that's where I was working at at the time. As a matter of fact. Hmm. Somebody probably knew that it was real rural and wasn't much going on out there mm-hmm. because i mean it's just a i say it's just a road between it's eight miles across there from highway 27 to highway 33 and it's about pretty much about the center about between halfway. the two roads okay about halfway i'm gonna i'm gonna take a ride out there tomorrow um and just check it out because i like to just see you know where it is it's probably maybe different now but i i've got a couple of the picture so that i'll know general area and like you said it did seem like it was right in the middle of that road so i'll get an idea and check it out well i appreciate you doing this for me because it gives me a a, you know a better idea of what you know it it doesn't sound like she would have been seen from the road in a car you would have had to get out and yeah, and you'd, seen you'd have had to get out because like, the weeds were up in, you know, in the bottom of the ditch, but that's where it, you wouldn't have just been riding by and saw it. That's yeah, just happened. I stopped right there at that spot. And no houses nearby or anything in there that was area. None whatsoever. Then they yeah. were just country. There was very little information in the newspapers about the unidentified victim at that time. One short blurb in the Orlando Sentinel the day after she was found read like this, quote, A badly decomposed body of a woman was found early Sunday by an unknown person in Claremont off 
County Road 474 between State Road 33 and U.S. Highway 27, a sheriff's spokesman said. The body was found in woods just north of the Polk County line by a person looking for cypress lumber. The cause of death is unknown, and no further information was available late Sunday. An autopsy is scheduled for today. Two days later, on the 28th, not much more information was revealed. The Orlando Sentinel article was titled, Body Found in Woods, Still Unidentified, and that pretty much summed it up. The only information added in this blurb was that fingerprints were taken from the body and sent to the FBI crime lab in the hopes of identifying the victim. They were still saying that the cause of death was unknown. The autopsy was performed at the Lake County Medical Examiner's Office on the 26th, the day after she was found, by Dr. William Schutz. The victim was logged in as a Jane Doe, and the report notes that Investigator Ray Morrison and Deputy David Houston from Tech Services with Lake County Sheriff's Department were also present. Full-body x-rays were made of the victim as well as a dental chart. The fingernails of the left hand were removed and turned over to Tech Services. The hand itself was sent to the FBI lab for fingerprint testing. Head and pubic hair were also collected for testing. It was noted that the body was too decomposed at the time for any DNA testing, but remember, that applies to whatever DNA testing they were even able to do in 1988. Most police and sheriff's departments didn't even have enough resources to cover this type of testing, even if they wanted to do it. Dr. Schutz noted that he thought the victim was approximately 34 to 45 years old, according to Morrison's report of the autopsy, and that the bone structure was small. Also noted, quote, the uterus could not be located, possible result of surgery. Morrison's notes regarding the autopsy indicate that the victim had strawberry blonde hair that the doctor believed to have been bleached by the sun. He felt that her natural hair was brown. Preliminary autopsy results indicated a possible fracture to the hyoid bone, but that would later be determined by x-ray not to be fractured, but instead a genetic abnormality. A summary of Schutz's notes indicate the body was skeletonized and mummified. She had tooth fillings present, there were no knife marks on the ribs, and the report went on to say that the pelvis was of a female type. Breast implants were found at the scene and submitted with the body. The pantyhose were further described as follows, quote, The upper portions of pantyhose were rolled down to the junction of the middle and upper thirds of the thighs. The faded denim skirt was, quote, present at the knees, and the report notes that its label read Manisha, M-A-N-I-S-H-A. In the final summary, the report says the partially skeletonized white woman, approximately 24 to 32 years old, had been dead from two days to two weeks prior to being found. The autopsy could not establish her cause of death. Now, on the same day that the autopsy was performed, her skeletal remains were then brought to the C.A. Pound Human Identification Lab in Gainesville, Florida, to be examined by William R. Maples, who was the curator in charge. Dr. Maples was a well-known forensic anthropologist. During his career, he worked on a number of high-profile cases. The Amazon.com summary of a book that he co-wrote with Michael Browning titled Dead Men Do Tell Tales, The Strange and Fascinating Cases of a Forensic Anthropologist, reads as follows. From a skeleton, a skull, or a mere fragment of burnt thigh bone, prominent forensic anthropologist Dr. William Maples can deduce the age, gender, and ethnicity of a murder victim, the manner in which the person was dispatched, and ultimately, 
the identity of the killer. In Dead Men Do Tell Tales, Dr. Maples revisits his strangest, most interesting, and most horrific investigations. During his almost three-decade career before his death in 1997, Dr. Maples mostly worked with medical examiners in Florida to examine bodies and also testify during criminal cases, but there were also occasions where his talents were made of use outside the United States. In 1984, the Republic of Peru asked him to consult regarding the identification of skeletal remains that they thought might be that of 16th century conqueror Francisco Pizarro. The remains in question were positively identified, while the remains that had been in a coffin in his name were ruled out. Just imagine that. The wrong remains had been in that coffin for hundreds of years. A few years later, in 1988, Dr. Maples was asked to assist in examining the skeletal remains of Joseph Merrick, also known as the Elephant Man, at the Royal London Hospital Whitechapel. A process of video superimposition that Maples often used was applied using death casts made of the remains. In 1991, it was former President Zachary Taylor's remains being examined by Dr. Maples. He was disinterred to determine whether or not the former president had been poisoned. In that case, test results were negative. A year later, in 1992, Maples and a team of forensic specialists were then invited to Russia to examine remains that had been tentatively identified as the Russian royal family. They were positively ID'd by the team as Tsar Nicholas II, his wife, three children, three servants, and his doctor. They had all been murdered in 1918. So I think it's safe to say that in 1988, when the remains of our Jane Doe were sent to the CA Pound Human Identification Laboratory, she was in capable hands. Dr. Maple's osteological examination of her reported a white female whose remains indicated death had occurred most likely from a few days to two weeks. The age indicated at death was 20s, but a possible range from 24 to 32 years. His best estimate of stature was approximately 69.5 inches, or 5 feet 9 and a half. He described her as a woman who appeared to have well-developed muscle attachment areas and said there was consistent and strong evidence that this woman most likely had one or more children. Regarding her nose, he said that the nasal bones and frontal processes of the maxilla showed severe and multiple fractures. He believed that they were healed or healing at the time of her death. She also had a healed fracture to the right zygomatic arch, commonly known as the right cheekbone. He said her left, seventh rib also showed a possible fracture that was healed. He noted that the hyoid bone was not fractured, nor was there any evidence of trauma or disease around the time of her death. No post-mortem damage was noted. He summarized with this paragraph, quote, these were the remains of a fairly strong, tall, white female who died most likely in her mid to late 20s. There was no skeletal evidence of disease or trauma around the time of her death. She was most likely not nulliparous, meaning someone who has not borne offspring, and she had received severe facial injuries at some time prior to her death. Without a name or identity for our victim, what we're left with is the roadmap of clues that each of our bodies would leave if we were tossed out of a vehicle like garbage and left to rot in the hot Florida sun. I am a native Floridian, so I am quite well-versed in the understanding that September in Florida is not fall like it is in much of the United States. It still feels like summer. It's generally still hot and muggy in September, and those conditions do not bode well for a human body left to Mother Nature's devices. 
So what do we know? Well, we have a woman with long, dyed blonde hair, formerly brown, wearing a tank top and a denim skirt, which further impresses upon us the weather at the time. You don't generally wear tank tops when it's cold. The top of her pantyhose are rolled down mid-thigh, and while there's a tank top and a denim skirt also present, there is no mention of shoes, socks, or underwear. It seems as though these are not a full pair of pantyhose. In reports, they're described by the ME as, quote, the upper portions of pantyhose which were rolled down to the junction of the middle and upper thirds of the thighs. One investigator described them as follows. The underpants, or top of pantyhose, appeared to have been rolled down to the upper third of her thigh. The blue denim skirt was about the legs. The wording sounds to me like she was wearing the top part of pantyhose with the leg portions missing as underwear, and those were rolled down to the middle of her thighs. Now, rolled down underwear or pantyhose can often indicate that the victim had been dragged by the wrists or upper body to the site where they were left, in this case from the vehicle to the side of the road where she was found. She was found lying face up, according to the report, which further aligns with being dragged there and left in that ditch on the south side of the road. A report also notes that she was lying straight and almost perpendicular to the pavement, feet pointing toward the pavement. The right arm was along her right side, slightly out from the body and bent at the elbow. The hand appeared to be palm down. The left arm was along her left side, with the left hand in the lap area, arm bent at the elbow. The legs were straight and somewhat spread. The feet and toes were pointed inward. Her sleeveless pullover shirt was pulled up around her shoulders. No other clothing found. Off to the body's left was what appeared to be a silicone breast implant. There are no notations of drag marks on the ground, nor are there any drag marks on her body or the clothing mentioned. We also don't have any idea about cause of death. There's no indication of strangulation based on the hyoid bone not being broken. There are no bullet holes, no knife marks, nothing. We don't have much. In a letter written to the director of the FBI on Lake County Sheriff's Department letterhead, dated September 29, 1988, three days after the autopsy, the following is written. Dear Sir, On September 25, 1988, at 11.45 a.m., the body of a badly decomposed white female was found along County Road 474 in Lake County, Florida. At the present time, we have no identity on the victim. The victim was approximately 25 feet off the road in five feet high weeds. The clothes on the victim were disarranged, tank top around her shoulder area, pantyhose rolled down to mid-thigh, and her skirt was down below the knees. The fingers on the right hand were missing from the first knuckle from the hand. She had silicone implants. Then the letter goes into preliminary findings on age, weight, size, etc. that changed just a little bit after Dr. Maples made his determinations. It ended reading, quote, I am sending by UPS one package containing the left hand of the victim. It will be appreciated if you will obtain the fingerprints of the victim's hand and search your records for any possible information on our victim. This evidence, which should be returned to us, has not been examined by any other expert. That, by the way, is a prerequisite of the FBI. It is my understanding that they will not perform tests on items of evidence that have already been tested by other agencies. This means that local agencies always have to decide what they need to send the FBI first before they begin their own testing. That's something that I only recently learned. 
but it is certainly something to consider when you're evaluating the facts of these cases. I would also like to mention that the Fall Line podcast did a really good episode on Julie Doe. You can find it in their Season 3 episodes. They delved into areas that I did not cover, like similar Florida cases and a deeper look at the science. I recommend it for those interested in Julie Doe's case and as a podcast in general. They always do a really thorough job in researching the cases that they cover. In the next episode, I will try to sort out a convoluted tale regarding a confidential informant, a couple of roommates, and a tall woman with strawberry blonde hair. It's a story that got the attention of investigators on this case just days after Jane Doe's body was found. Stay tuned.